Now let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is our sermon text this evening. 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Banah, and the name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Rimon, the Berethite, of the sons of Benjamin. For Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Berethites fled to Gittaim, and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Rimon the Berethite, Rechab and Banah, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Benah, his brothers, escaped. Now, when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered Rechab and Benah, his brothers, sons of Rimon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, behold, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hugged them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would illumine our minds, that we would understand your word and understanding it, that we would believe it and believing it, we would obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. All right, so a little bit of background. Of review, who is Ishbosheth? Who's Ishbosheth? Anybody remember Saul's son and ruler of basically eleven tribes of Israel at this point? David is ruler of one tribe, and so king of Israel. Um, he was set up as king by whom? Abner set him up as king and anointed him. Abner was murdered in the last chapter by Joab. And who's Joab? Yep, 
He's a brother of Azahel. He is um, the commander of David's armies. Abner was Ishbosheth's commander of armies, and Joab was David's commander. Remember at the end of last time that David, um, Abner had been killed by Joab in cold blood, in a sense. Uh, remember, Joab takes him down to the gate of the city and uh, slaughters him. Abner had killed Azahel, Joab's brother, but it was in battle, right? There was a difference between the, um, the death of Azahel and the death of, of Abner. Joab kills him, and remember at the end of the chapter, verse 39 of chapter 3, David says, I am weak today though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. The sons of Zeruiah are Joab and his brothers. Right? May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. So here's Joab who had done this wicked deed. And David is too weak that day to deal with Joab. Um, that will come into play again in this uh, section. Abner, what was Abner doing when Joab killed him? Remember what Abner was trying to do? He was trying to unite the tribes, right? He was trying to bring back the eleven under David. And, um, and so, keep that in mind. Now, we, we begin at chapter 4. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron. And it says of him that he lost courage. And all Israel was disturbed. Uh, this phrase here, he lost courage, is literally his hands dropped. Right? So he's like, ah, oh, you know. And just goes weak um, when he learns that Abner had died. And, and all, from all we know about Abner, we have to think that Abner was really the brains behind that kingdom. And Ishbosheth was... Um, was the blood because he was Saul's son, but uh, Abner was um, was the real strength of that kingdom, and so he dies, and Ishbosheth is is worried about it. Enter in two men, Bana and Rechab. Uh, these two men were um, tough guys, right? They were raiders, they were plunderers. They would make raids upon um, their enemies and and take. Um, take their stuff. And so they're Benjamites and um, they're introduced here. And then we get this strange switch in scenes. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a, a son crippled in his feet. Right? And so we, we Mephibosheth is introduced. Um, he'll, he'll return in later chapters, but he's introduced and we just get this story about how when, when um, Mephibosheth's uh, nurse took him and fled, somehow she ended up breaking both of his legs and he became crippled in his feet. Why do you think that's here? It seems like we get this story about Ishbosheth and these two raiders and it's just interrupted by this verse. Of course, nothing's arbitrary in Scripture it being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Any thoughts on that? Any? Your guess would be better than mine were. 
I got to read the commentary, so I know the answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he is, but he isn't, right? Jonathan had already denied the throne. So he had come out of the line. Um, but but the, the remaining son of Jonathan may have, had, may have tried to claim some stake in the throne. And so I think what this is, is saying is we're getting down to the dregs of Saul's household, right? And Saul's household was cursed. And, um, and so we're seeing the end of his household come along. Of course, Mephibosheth, so, so there's, one, um, there's one boy who's crippled in his feet, and that doesn't seem to be too much of a threat to the, the kingdom. Um, but it also, said, it also indicates that the house of Saul is not completely destroyed. So then we go back to Bana and Rechab, and they they go in to um, they go in the middle of the day into the house of Ishbosheth and do what? What they do? Yeah, they killed him on his bed, and then they cut off his head, yo. Right? Um, that's exactly right. They, they, <laughs> they kill Ishbosheth, they behead him. Where do they go? Where do they go? He's got all the answers back there. He's showing up, you older kids up, up front. Um, he goes back to David, traveling all night. They head to Hebron. That's where David is, is headquartered. And they go to David and they say, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Right? They're like, Look what we have. We have done you a favor. We have, we have served you, the king. We have brought to you the head of your enemy. This is the man who is seeking your life. This is the son of Saul, your enemy. And then they, they say, Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Right? They, in a sense, invoke the name of the Lord to bless their work. Right? Once again, David's response is not the response that we expect from him, right? Or maybe it is. How is he responds by, by being angry with these two men, even though they have dispatched Ishbosheth? How is this similar to previous events? Yep. Not the last time. That was the first time. There's one other time that happens in, in the middle of this. Right? But yeah, you're right. Um, Saul, it's just like when Saul was killed. Right? The messenger thought that he was bringing David good news, and David takes it, um, David does not take it as good news. 
and ends up killing the messenger or having the messenger killed, right? What about the death of Abner? Same thing, right? The death of Abner, he laments and causes all of Israel to lament, even though Abner had been a thorn in his flesh. And, um, and so the, David's response is um, atypical. David's response when his enemies are killed is, is lament. But this also makes, makes um, his not dealing with Joab really stand out, right? Um, Saul, the messenger of Saul is killed when bringing this. The, um, these two men are killed uh, by the hand of the young men when they um, bring to David Ishbosheth. But Joab gets a pass. Joab gets a pass, and he should have probably been treated this way, forcefully. Well, Ishbosheth wasn't exactly anointed as king, right? Um, right, but Joab nonetheless was a man with authority, and um, it stands out that David did not did not deal with him, um, rather than uh, and and did deal with other men. And then he says he says this: How much more? Right, he brings up Saul. He mentions that look, Saul, the the men who thought they were bringing me good news when Saul died. Um, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? So the method of the killing is, is um, pointed out as being despicable here. Why? Because one, it's not in battle. And two, it is a man in his own house on his bed. That's like, that's a sanctuary within a sanctuary, right? A man in his own house on his bed, resting, um, not expecting any any difficulty to come along. And David points that out. He says, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man? How in the world is Ishbosheth a righteous man? What do you think that refers to? <laughs> any any ideas? Uh, maybe. I mean, if he didn't know him, if if uh, this is a son of Saul. There may have been some interaction. He may well have known Ishbosheth. Um, yeah. So compared to compared to the two guys who murdered him, he's a righteous man. That could be. Um, that could be. He's he's an Israelite. He's, um, he's a legitimate ruler, in a sense, right? He's been, he's been put up in place of, of uh, I mean, anointed by Abner, but still um, 
I find that difficult. Um, yeah, given the circumstances, given that he was killed at his home by himself, I think it may just be a reference to that, that he was, un, unprovo- he was not provoking anybody to kill him at that point. And so it may just be referring to that. But, but nonetheless, he does bring out this fact that, that he is killed in his home. Um, the young men kill him, and, and um, that's not the only time that it says that the young men uh, are activated in order to do this. I think it just means those, those who are at David's command, um, army men, comm- um, men that he has authority over, and not just like trying to provoke young boys to um, get into the action here. Um, it is uh, those that are under his command. And they cut off his hands and feet. Why? What do they do with those hands and feet? Put them on public display down at the neighborhood pool, right? Not the neighborhood pool, but, you know, some sort of water source. Um, they um, They put them on display. Why do you think David does that? He's always thinking politically, isn't he? Seems like he's, he, he at times is thinking politically and then at other times is not thinking politically. But he wants it to be clear that he has not been the one who killed Ishbosheth. And so these hands and feet of two men are displayed publicly um, to say that vengeance has been taken against those that have killed Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth's head is buried in the grave of Abner. What, what could that possibly mean? Why would that be done? Well, first of all, it's buried, right? It's not hung up on a wall. It's not publicly displayed. So they're showing honor to Ishbosheth by burying it. True. That's true. But Abner and Ishbosheth were sort of at odds with one another. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the king of Israel has lost his head. Israel has lost its head, right? And now, um, who's at fault? Abner is at fault, and now the head rests upon Abner. It's, it's, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of symbol, symbology, if that's a word, going on here, right? And so... Um, so that's this whole, that's all the action here. What do we do with a passage like this when it comes to applications? Well, first of all, here, here are a few that, um, that I stole from John Calvin. 
Um, what do we see here, generally speaking? What, what general action do we see here? Is there any way to summarize this chapter in one sentence? Revenge belongs to the Lord. That's close to what I have. Um, God executes His just judgment by means of wicked men. God, so it's not just that God executes vengeance. Often he'll execute vengeance through the hands of wicked men. I mean, think of that kind of sovereign power. That you can manipulate, not manipulate, you can absolutely define the actions of wicked men. And you can use those actions of wicked men to bring about your good plan. Now, of course, we know that God has, has always been doing that. God is not limited to the actions of righteous men. God is not limited um, as if the wicked he has no control over. Of course, we know that from, from um, the book of Job that, that even Satan himself must ask permission uh, to afflict Job, and God has to grant that permission, right? And we know it from, from Joseph and the action of his brothers and that statement at the end of Genesis about um, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so this is a principle all throughout Scripture that God can execute, can bring about His justice by means of wicked men. Um, Calvin said, the wicked greatly desire to rebel against God and to fight against His will as far as they can. They even force themselves to do so. Nevertheless, God constrains them in spite of themselves to serve His providence. And so it is with Satan, their chief. Right? So God constrains even the wicked to do His will. And that's a mind-boggling thought, isn't it? All the wickedness we see in the world today, all the, the political intrigue, all of the, all of the, um, the, the nastiness that we see in our own country and, and the, the, the manner of those who, uh, or the, the character of those who lead us, doesn't limit God's actions. In fact, He will accomplish His will through wicked men. Which means that in some sense we can just rest. We can relax. Right? We don't have to go all Fox News about everything. We can rest. We can know that God is working out His will. We can be patient. We can wait upon the Lord. Right? And that's, that's a wonderful thing. That is providence even works over the wicked is, is comforting. It should be comforting. He, uh, Calvin goes on, he says, Therefore we see that when there are many troubles in this world and everything is in confusion, it is not that God is asleep in heaven. For however men may do battle in this way, He knows why He gives them free reign. 
He wants to punish their sins and the sins of others and prove the patience of His children, showing them that their rest is not here below. So when the world is going what seems like chaos, one of the reasons Calvin says that that is happening is so that God may prove His children as patient. Is that how you would characterize yourself when, when President Obama got elected for his second term? Everybody was despairing. Everybody was like this man who loves bloodshed in abortion got reelected. And we were all despairing, thinking that, thinking that um, this meant the uh, downfall of, of our country. Well, there's a sense in which we grieve over that, but there's also a sense in which we can sit back and watch God work. Right? We can sit back and watch God's providence work. And we can be patient. Patient. Um, Christians don't have to wear tinfoil hats. Right? Christians, Christians aren't conspiracy theorists. Right? Because we know God's sovereign. We know God is turning about the king in his hand. Alright, so again, that's a theological application. That's an application for you to rest in God's providence. Um, what other applications can we make out of this passage? I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you chime in here. Yeah, Sarah. going to play well. Yeah, you've got to think that these, these brothers um, were, trying to, were trying to get an advantage here, were trying to impress the king. And uh, it wasn't merely just about bringing together the tribes, it wasn't merely about serving David, and, um, but it was really about what they would get. Yeah, that's... That's helpful. Helpful to me. Yeah, I mean, we certainly are learning that those around Ishbosheth are not trustworthy men, and that is the house of Saul. Um, it really is. No. 
Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. He is the king. He does, he does have the power of the sword and the ability to, to pronounce judgments and make and execute. And yet he is, um, he, he at this point is not um, willing to go after that. Um, Ishbosheth trusted in man. Ishbosheth. When Abner died, he lost courage. Right? His hands went limp when he learned of Abner's death. He trusted in man. As soon as Abner's gone, he loses courage. I mean, think of how many times we've we've done a similar thing. You know, somebody somebody um, somebody we trusted uh, leaves, departs. Um, turns and goes to the opposite team, right? And we just, we lose all courage. We lose um, our faith in God. Is it that we serve man or serve God? And so um, I think we can easily, uh, we easily show that we trust in man when a one earthly loss uh, causes us to lose courage, right? What, I mean, Ishbosheth should have, should have, Called out to God, should have trusted in God, but um, it appears he trusted in man. Um, I pointed out that the during during this explanation um, to David about why they did this, that these brothers um, used the Lord's name, used the Lord's personal name, Yahweh. Um, the enemies of God always use his name and misuse his name, right? They, they, um, here's what Calvin says, they falsely use the name of God as though God were their companion, which is typical of the way in which the wicked are not ashamed to bandy about the name of God. They just bandy about the name of God, and why do they usually do it? They usually do it in order to cover up their wickedness in the name of God. Right, so, so David corrects them that this is not a righteous deed. And yet they had already used the name of the Lord to cover up their dishonesty. Right? They, think, they think God should lend him his name. Lend them his name. That's what they think. And, that, um, and so when you hear the name of the Lord it doesn't necessarily mean that you're dealing with a friend, right? When you hear the name of the Lord, it could be that you're dealing with an enemy of God who is using that name to cover up their wickedness. And so don't be naive when it comes to the use of the name of the Lord. Don't be naive when someone claims to be a Christian 
and speaks a lot about Jesus. It may be that they're an actual enemy of Jesus and they are merely trying to impress you with lip service or to manipulate you. You know, I, I think of you don't ever call a business in the, the um, yellow pages that has a Christian symbol on it. Because they're usually not Christian, but they know they can dupe the Christians, right? They, can, they portray themselves as a friend, and they're usually the most, um, oh, greasy when it comes to business practice, right? Um, using symbols, using the name of the Lord to cover up um, sins. Uh, okay, I gave one. What other ones? What other, what other applications do you draw out of this that would encourage us? No more? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they go down this path, they make decisions, and their end is death. That, that is, all the times we read of that in Scripture, it's telling us to, to take the right path, right? To follow the right path. To not make your own decisions. And, and along with that is to remember, put to memory the good things that God has done for you as you've followed Him. Right? Remember the good things that God has blessed you with as you have followed Him in the past. And um, that, keeps us, that keeps us, I mean, we would say grounded, but it keeps us in the fear of the Lord. It keeps us um, to attempt, it, it keeps us from attempting that which would d- displease God. And so do you recite to yourself what God has done for you in the past? Do you talk about it as a family? Do you remember the great things that the Lord has done for you? You should. You should give Him thanks privately, but you should also do it in order to fend off unbelief and fend off going a different route, right? You could probably also remember all the times you were stupid and sinned and God God disciplined you, right? And those are worth remembering, too, um, so that we don't go down that path. Um, <clears throat> uh, the one last thing I'll mention here, unless there's any other applications, that it, it's wonderful that, um, I mean, when I'm sitting in a group of people, it's hard for me to think of applications. So those of you who are able to do that when you're sitting in a group of people, wonderful. 
Um, it means you're really able to read Scripture and, and apply it, and that's wonderful. Um, the, the, David, um, the one last thing that I'll mention is that David had the authority to punish, and what we should learn from that is to hate evil that, um, this, this is what Calvin said, this is not me. He says, let us therefore learn to hate evil that we will let the police deal with those things they should. Right? So, in other words, God has raised up authorities to deal with evil and let's let the authorities deal with evil. Right? It, it, David had authority. He had the authority of the sword. And so it's not unrighteous of him to command that these men receive capital punishment. And likewise, we have governing authorities who have been given power by God to execute justice and execute um, punishment on those who do evil. And so um, he mentions the police. Now that's probably an English translation of some French Genevan strange office that doesn't really um, relate to our police, but there it is. Um, appreciate your police. They have to deal with evil all the time. I mean, think of that. Think of how obnoxious you have been every time you get pulled over to get a ticket. That's everybody who gets pulled over to get a ticket. They have to deal with that all the time. Um, and nonetheless, they are also dealing with very violent crimes continuously. Um, we, we've been meeting with Bob Forney uh, for basic training, and Bob Forney works in the coroner's office in Toledo. And so every dead body from Toledo, he gets to look at. And he gets to test their blood and do tox reports. And, and um, every five-year-old that's murdered by somebody, he, he has to look at. And I think to myself, that is a burden that very few, few people could bear. I mean, every day going in and seeing the violent crimes that happened in your own city. And so we need to pray for <clears throat> our leaders. We need to pray for men like Bob Forney that are in these positions. Pray for our policemen. Pray for our, you know, sheriff's office. Pray for those that um, should be punishing evildoers and praising those who do right. And so that's another application I take out of here from David's punishment of these men.